Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. Us husbands are supposed to love our wives like Christ loves the church. And uh, you go to Ephesians 5, you not only find out that Jesus loves the church, you find out how he loves the church, and you also find out why he loves the church. Why does Jesus Christ love the church so well? so sacrificially, so unconditionally? Well, the simple answer is because he wants us to be able to stand before God holy and blameless, without spot or without wrinkle. His love is not selfish. His love for us is is so that we could stand before his Father And not be ashamed, not be embarrassed, not not sit and shrug our shoulder like, well, we wish we'd have done better, but, you know, you know, life is life. Jesus wants to love us so well, and in the process, we become more like what God intends for us to be. Holy, blameless, spotless, without wrinkle. Well, sometimes love you know, has that that nice, cushy, comforting feeling. And then sometimes we all know love is kind of tough. We're going to see some tough love today from Jesus towards his church. Because you know what? One of the elements of love is that you tell someone the truth. You, You give it to them graciously, but honestly. And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage that we're going to look at. You've you've turned to uh, Revelation 2 and uh, just wanted to remind you, we we started a a new study last week that we're calling Jesus Revealed. It's the study of the book of Revelation. I've wanted to do this for a long time and uh, uh, we're doing it now. It's going to go into the next spring. We'll take a break at Christmas time. But uh, we're going to walk through the book of Revelation. And, you know, normally when you get to the book of Revelation, you think, oh, it's all about the end times. And that's true. But it's also about who Jesus Christ is. I mean, the, the, the name of it is the revelation of Jesus. So we're not only going to see what Jesus is going to do, we're going to see who he is. And that's really an important factor to to keep in mind because the truth is, is in the Gospels, we see Jesus Christ and we kind of walk away thinking he's meek and lowly, gentle and kind. He's this shepherd. And that's, that's absolutely true. But at the other end of the New Testament, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that's the image they present. But in the book of Revelation, the New Testament closes showing us that Jesus Christ is not just Savior, 
He is Lord. And the image of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, it is one that ought to put the fear of God into us. Because he has come as judge and the one who will exact justice for God and his people. That's the Jesus that we're going to look at. Now, just in case you uh, weren't here last week or maybe you needed a little review, here's what the book of Revelation is basically all about. It's a vision that Jesus, it's a vision of Jesus and what he will do, seen and recorded by the Apostle John in about 95 AD. By this time, John's well into his 90s. While he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, and he was to record it for the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so that's what the book of Revelation is basically all about. Now, I asked you to look at Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Because there you get kind of a, an outline. After G John had seen this image, this vision of Jesus... He's told to write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things that are, and those that will take place after this. Well, what, what had John just seen? He had seen that vision of Jesus with the glowing feet and the white hair and the long white robe, the piercing eyes, the sword coming out of his mouth. We saw him like that. That's... That's what John had seen. That's the first part of the outline. Next week, when we start in chapter 4, we're going to see the things that will be. We'll begin to see those things. You know what we're going to see today? We're going to see the things that are. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that chapters 2 and 3 are basically these letters or messages that Jesus had to those seven churches. Remember, John is supposed to write this vision up, record it, and send it to these seven churches. Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Laodicea, and the others. And got what, what, ha what you have in chapter 2 and 3 are basically seven messages to those churches. And that's what we're going to do today, is look at them. Now, sometimes in the past, in fact, I know I've done it at least twice in my time here, uh, we've gone through and we've spent a Sunday on each one of those messages. I know even just a few weeks ago, as part of the sermon series before, we, at the 9.30 hour, we looked at one of these messages. I know David Revis has gone through it, these, these seven uh, messages several times in his community group. You want to learn more about that? Go to the website, search, you'll find those there. Today we're just going to take a big picture look at all seven of them. Because here's what these, these messages are about. Look at this on the screen. Now, by the way, you know, I'm going to have a lot of stuff on the screen today. And if you want to write it down, that's great. Another thing you could do is just take a picture of the screen. You know, it'll do my ego well. I'll think you're taking a picture of me. I'll smile, but get the pit screen. You may not want to write all this stuff down. Take a picture of it. That's, that's a good thing to do. But here's, here's what these messages of the church to the church are. 
It's a picture. They provide us with a picture of the not-so-triumphant, the not-so-sanctified church that isn't fully availing itself of who Christ is and what he did for them. Now remember, what did I say at the very beginning? Jesus is loving the church so well, so unconditionally, so sacrificially, because he wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be, be holy and blameless before God without spot or wrinkle. You know, sin in our life may not bother us, but you know what? It bothers God. And Jesus is doing us a favor trying to love us so well that we'll clean up our witness, our testimony, our lives, so that when you stand before God and I stand before God, as, their, as his child, we will be holy. But what we're going to see in these messages is that for the most part, the church isn't so holy. It's a not so sanctified church. It's not that triumphant. Remember when Jesus first introduced the uh, concept of the church, Matthew 16? He said, I'm going to build my church. And what's the next line? and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That sounds like a triumphant church to me. But it doesn't take much rocket science to figure out that the church is not so triumphant. It really isn't. The church has struggled almost since its inception. Oh, there's been seasons when it really grows, and there's been seasons when it really does not grow. And let's be honest, you know what? We're in a season, not just us, but the entire North American church is in a season when we're not so triumphant. You know, Vicki and I started reading a book about it yesterday. Uh, we talked about it a little bit in the 930 hour in one of the groups there. Uh, do you know that there's 40 million people that have left the church 40 million people over the last 20 years, 40 million people, and you know some of them. I know some of them. As we were reading it, I thought, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. They used to be very involved in church, and now they might not even go to a Christmas Eve service. They may hit Easter, but they won't show up again until the next Christmas. They're not in a church. They can say, oh, I belong to this. You know, I'm a member of this church. I'm a member of that church. But they really are not. They are de-churched. Forty million people have walked away, and you say, well, th this church is growing over there. Look at that church. It's growing. Usually when you see a church that's really growing these days, it's growing at the expense of other churches. It's just, you know... It's like grocery stores, you know? More people are going to this store, and that means less people are going to the other stores. We might sit and say, oh, the church is good, but you know what? Jesus would say it's a not-so-triumphant church, and it's definitely a not-so-holy church. And that's what we're going to see today in these letters. And Jesus has just given us some tough love to tell us hey, you know what? You're really pretty. You're really handsome. But you got a zit right there in the middle of your forehead. I mean, if, if, who told you that? You know who told me that? 
my mom. My mom. My dad would go, what's that? You know, but my mom would say, here, let me help you figure out how to fix that. She loved me. Jesus loves us, and so he's telling us the truth about who we are. And these seven churches that we're going to look at, they're kind of representative of the church. I mean, there's times as I look at it, Fellowship Bible Church has been every one of these churches. There's times when I look at it and I think, you know, that church over there, right now it's Laodicea. Right now it's Smyrna. Right now it's Ephesus. Right now it's Pergamum. You know, the truth of the matter is, these, I think, were chosen because they're representative to say, hey, here are the common problems. Now, chapters 2 and 3, like I said, there's seven messages there. Verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Verse 8, to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Verse 18, to the angel of the church of Thyatira. Verse 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum. And interestingly, every one of these messages kind of follows the same little format. There's a little introduction, there's a little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and a little bit of that, and then a promise at the end. Well, what I'm going to do, just for time's sake, is I'm just going to point out three elements. Because in every one of these messages, he basically said, hey, here is a problem. Here is the dark side of your church. And then he also says, here's the opportunity you got. You got a dark side, you got a problem, you got a, a fault. But here's what you can do. Here's your opportunity. And then the last thing I want us to look at is what I'm calling the uh, safeguard, or maybe a better one would have been the solution. So here's another big screen. Here's what, here's what the dark side is. You know, in, in five of these seven letters, Jesus says, I have this against you. Wouldn't that be something? To have Jesus say, this is what I've got against you. Now again, you might just want to take a picture of this unless you're a fast writer. Here's, here's what it is. See, there's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I put the asterisks over there because actually in those situations, Smyrna and Philadelphia, there wasn't anything wrong with them. But it's kind of interesting. They're kind of the exception because the problem they didn't have, most of the rest of us do have it. Same thing uh, for Smyrna, same thing for Pergamum. Now, I'm not going to walk through all of these. I just want to walk through three or four of them that I really want to preach about, okay? Look at verse, look at verse 4 of chapter 2. This is, this is the letter to Ephesus, okay? Ephesus, Ephesus. I mean, they got the book of Ephesians. They had Timothy as their pastor for a long, long time. This is a good church. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden 
stands says this. Remember, that was the vision last week. He's holding the seven stars. He's walking among these, these churches that are, you know, uh, portrayed as lampstands, these big candelabras that shine out light. He says in verse 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. I mean, you guys have done a good job of kicking those heretics out of the church. Verse 3, and you have preserved, persevered, and have endured for my name's sakes, and you've not grown weary. You guys have done great. Look at verse 4. But, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Now, I know some of you that have been around for a long time, you've heard this talked about a lot. But this is what they did. And this is what we can do. I mean, evidently, these people got so into theology, so into Bible, so into understanding the nuances of the text that their hearts grew cold. You know, and, and, and it's like that there was no love or compassion. They left their first love. And, and it's like, you know, lots of understandings on this thing of what exactly was their first love. But I think the best one... And really the correct one is they left their love for Jesus Christ. They were more in love with their doctrine. They were more in love with their strategy. They were more in love with kicking out heretics than they were in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was supposed to be their first and foremost love. Now, is doctrine not, not important? <laughs> sure it is. Kicking out heretics, is that not important? Boy, that, you, you better do it. Some of the, we're going to see some of the other people are getting called out because they don't kick out the heretics. But these people left their first love. They, they were no longer all about Jesus. Remember seven, eight weeks ago, that was what our sermon was about. I mean, we want to be people that are Jesus-centered, Jesus-exalting. Because it's so easy to be all about Fall Fest, all about OCC, all about a Thanksgiving dinner, all about Awana, all about this, all about that, all about this other thing. And it's almost like, is Jesus even fitting into the programming? Is there ever a, a meeting about Jesus, or is it just about this stuff? Are we Jesus-loving people? Look down at uh, 2.14, Pergamum. See in 2.14, okay, verse 12 says, To the angel of the church of Pergamum, right. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. That's the description of Jesus. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. Boy, you're doing great. But look at verse 14, and this is another big but, okay? But I have few, a few things against you because you have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed. I mean, you've got some false teaching going on amongst you. Verse 15, they had the Nicolaitans. We don't know who they are. 
Not the people that started the TV network, we know that, but, uh, you know, look at that. What is happening there? They're, they're, they're tolerating false teaching. Boy, is that going on in the church today? Yeah. I mean, we as a church, we love to deviate from orthodoxy. We fall in love with this thing and that thing and this other thing. And Jesus is chastising these people because they are abandoning the truth. Look down at the next one, Thyatira. They're in verse 420, okay? You know, 18 through 19, it's kind of that same thing. He describes, Jesus describes himself. He points out at good things that they're doing, great things that they're doing sometimes. Verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. You know, what is it in general that they're doing? They're tolerating ungodly leadership. Boy, if ever that's true of the church too. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, one of the things we do our very best to do is to have godly leadership. We, we do our best that when we nominate someone to the board of elders, for example, that person is measuring up to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where it says this is what an elder is supposed to be like. And I don't want to throw stones, but, you know, this is a small town, and we know what's going on out there sometimes. Truth of the matter is, folks, we can look at churches in our town, and we can look at them across the nation. They've got ungodly leadership. They've got ungodly, unqualified leadership. I, you know, this isn't, well, I probably shouldn't say it. I'm not going to say it. But, but the truth of the matter is that is a problem. It is a problem that the modern-day church has. We take a look at a person's skills, a person's, you know, stuff, and, and quite frankly, you know, that person, if they worked for IBM, they could make it grow. If they worked for Apple, they could make that grow. But they decided to work for XYZ Church, and so they've made it grow. And everyone's like, whoa, he is a man blessed of God. Truth of the matter is, no, he's just probably a very skilled. But the real question is, is he godly? And sometimes... When you scratch, and you don't even have to scratch much, the person's not godly at all. I mean, there's, there's gross immorality in their life, or there's, there's financial uh, in whatever, you know? And, and, and then we, when, the, when it comes out, we're like, can you believe that? That guy changed my marriage. That guy changed my, my life. My, I am walking with Jesus because of what that guy did. And I found out, you know, he's shacking up with every woman he could. And he embezzled all this money and this and this and this. And, and we're saying, why does it work that way? Well, much of it is our fault because we've tolerated ungodliness because we've looked at other things as the measure of godliness. That's what they were doing there in Thyatira. Let's go down to one more and then we're going to push on. Go all the way to the end, over to chapter 3. This is everybody's favorite, Laodicea. They were lukewarm. 
Trouble is, is almost every church in America is lukewarm. You know how you get lukewarm? You have some hot and you have some cold and they try to coexist and they become lukewarm. And, and, and what does Jesus say? He said, I want to spit you out of my mouth. See verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's what Jesus is saying to his wife. That's some tough love. Would Jesus say that to you? Would he say that to Fellowship Bible Church? Because the truth of the matter is, sometimes we're lukewarm. And maybe sometimes it's because we're all lukewarm, or maybe it's because sometimes we're really hot, but there's another section of us that are just really cold, and when you try to pull it all together, you just get this lukewarm thing that is so unappetizing you want to spit it out of your mouth. That's the dark side. And like I said, we could go on and on and on, because I just scratched the surface of, what, three churches out of the seven? But here's what the opportunity is. How do you, here, here's, here's the opportunity to fix, okay? Again, just, just go up there. What, look at verse, go back to ch- the Ephesian church, chapter 2. What does Jesus say to them in verse 5? These are the people that had left their first love. These are the people that had turned their back on Jesus, You know, they were in love with his doctrine, and they were in love with their theology, and they were in love with all the other ins and outs of uh, the Christian faith, but they had turned their back on Jesus, the Savior. And what does he say? Verse 5, 2, 5. Remember there from, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm going to come and remove your lampstand remember repent and repeat that's what he's telling them look down at chapter 2 verse 16 what did he tell the people in Pergamum repent therefore or else I'm coming quickly and I will make war against you I don't want to make war against you I don't want to discipline you So repent, change. The word repent means you're going in this direction, stop, turn around, and start walking this direction. It is is a change of mind, it is a change of action, it is a change of attitude. And there are times when the church, when we as individuals within the church, need to repent. Whether it's because we've been so in love with doctrine that we forgot Jesus, whether it's because we've been so enamored with this ungodly, unqualified leader, or we've got so enamored with this this ungodly, heretical teaching. I mean, all of that we need to repent from. Go over to the the message to the Laodiceans. Chapter 3, the very end, verse 14 down to verse 22. Look at this, what he tells them to do in verse 18. 
These are the people that were lukewarm. These are the people that weren't hot, they weren't cold, and Jesus wants to spit them out of his mouth. You know what he says? Verse 18, he says, I advise you to buy from me gold that's been refined by fire in order that you might become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. I mean, he says start investing in eternal things. That repentance, that remembering. Start investing in eternal things. Buy some real gold. Let me ask you, are you buying real gold or just buying fool's gold? That was what the Laodiceans needed to do. Look at verse 20. We all know this verse. You know, if you grew up in Sunday school, you saw the picture hanging on the wall. Jesus knocking on the door. Let me in. Jesus said to these Laodiceans, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him. And he with me, that's the opportunity that you all have. So we've signed the, the dark side. We saw the opportunity they have, the opportunity to fix it, to come back, is always there. I mean, that, what an incredible God we have that graciously lets us back in to the, to, to the fold, to the, to the house. Remember the the parable of the prodigal son? The prodigal son goes off, squanders so much, he's in the pig pen. And he realizes his sin and he comes back. What does he have to do? Knock on the door, see if he could get a job? No. He gets out there and his father sees him a long way off coming and his father goes and meets him. And immediately brings him the robe and the ring and tells him to cook up the food. Because we're going to have a party. I mean, that's the kind of God that we have that wants to invite us back. That's where what's on the other side of repentance. One more element I want to point out to you. What's the safeguard or, or maybe the solution might have been a better thing. Do you notice in every one of these messages, every one of them has a picture of Jesus? See verse 1 of chapter 2, chapter 2, this is the one back to the Ephesians. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he says this. Look down at verse 8. The Smyrna people, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, he says this. Verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Verse 18, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, he says this. Verse 1 of chapter 3, 
he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he says this. Verse 7, chapter 3. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. He says this. In verse 14, the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. You know, every one of these messages had the solution built right in there. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. I mean, how do we stay in love with Jesus? It's by making Jesus a focal point of our lives. I mean, he needs to be the, the, the focus, the primary motivation for which we do everything. He's the motivation as to why we teach this class the way we teach it, why we design this product the way we design it, why we seek to make this sale the way we seek to make a sale. We're doing this for Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. What did Paul say? Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live in by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ. And what Jesus did right there in these, these seven tough messages to some people who were really far off, just like us, he said, take a look at me. You know, there's something else that's here. Put it on the screen there. There's a promise for reward. Jesus is saying, hey, this, it's worth it. Look at chapter uh, 2. Go back to chapter 2, verse 7. Here's this promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him who heeds this advice, who, who repents, who forsakes, who steps up, who perseveres, whatever Jesus was calling him to, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Verse 17 Halfway through, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him white stone, a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. All of these promises that Jesus Christ offered. Skip all the way to the end, very end of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 21. This is what he said to the Laodiceans. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the solution. It is keeping your eyes on Jesus. Pretty simple, so what today? 
You know, we always like to ask the question, so what? What difference does this make? I mean, it's telling us. If we don't want to be like the Laodiceans or the Ephesians or the people in Thyatira or any of these others, I mean, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Hebrews 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Do you remember that passage? Therefore, run the race with perseverance. And verse 2, what does it say? It says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. The most important relationship you have is not with a spouse, it's not with a child, it's not with a co-worker, it's not with some friend. The most important relationship you have is with Jesus Christ. And you need to personally, regularly cultivate it. Or else, as Jesus said, I'll come. And to his own wife, he says, I'll make war with you. He loves you too much for in the end, for you to stand before his father in filthy clothes, with a stained heart, with, with 70 or 80 years of wasted life. He wants you to preserve, to persevere hard and run that race. So what are you doing to run that race? I mean, let me give you two things that would just automatically improve your relationship with Jesus Christ. The first one is you need to be in his word regularly, daily if possible. I know some days are so hard, it's tough to fit it in. But you need to be in his word as much as you possibly can. You need to read his word and, and, and just walk your way through it and, and, and seek to, to find out what is he saying. That, that's like just it's like dinner. You skip dinner, you skip lunch, you skip breakfast, you're going to start starving. Truth of the matter is, you stop spending time in his word if you've never spent time in your word if the only thing you're getting is just a sermon from me or sermon from someone else or a podcast this or a podcast that i can just tell you your your relationship with christ is about that thick zero i mean it could be so much more if you personally were interacting with the word of god and if you're not doing it you're not growing. Sorry. That's the truth. Read his word. I said there was two things. You know what else? Come and avail yourself of the church of Christ, of the community of Christ. Be part of the fellowship. You know, here's one of the horrible things that has happened. All of us in our participation over the last three, four years, Many people like to blame it on COVID, but it really is just blame it on a lack of discipline, lack of motivation, misplaced priorities. All of us have decreased in our participation. Instead of being at church, you know, seven times out of eight, now we're at church 
every other week, you know? We miss 50% of the time. Sometimes we're not even making 50% of the time. You know, the idea of coming and participating on Wednesday night, that just ain't working for me anymore. We, are, we don't have kids in Iwana. Why should we come? We don't have kids in Iwana. We don't. You know, the idea of, of thinking about being in a small group, a home group, we're busy. I mean, how are you going to invest in a relationship with Jesus Christ if you never go and be with the family of Jesus Christ? Or your participation with the body of Christ, the family of Christ, is so sparse that it ain't there. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. And if you're not growing, you're shrinking. And if you're not growing and you're shrinking, the door is wide open to any one of these and many, many other bad things that can creep into that relationship. See, you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and two things that would easily improve your relationship with him this week is to read his word and to participate in the family of God as much as you possibly can. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for uh, just your son speaking so bluntly and boldly to us. And Father, I pray that today we would, we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has to say. Father, if, if we have been chasing doctrine, theology, lots of good things, but not chasing Christ, I pray, Father, our hearts would be quickened and we'd repent. I pray, Father, that if we are enamored with, with ungodly leadership or ungodly truth teaching, I pray, Father, you'd make it very clear to us and we'd repent. I pray, Father, that if, if we're just keeping one foot in heaven and one foot in the world and we're just kind of hot and cold and therefore a little lukewarm, I pray, Father, we would buy gold. I pray, Father, we'd recognize we're citizens of heaven and we need to live as citizens of heaven and go hard after you. I thank you for the example of your son who ran the race, and we want to run the race as he has, as many others have. So, Father, I just, uh, we just give you uh, this situation in our lives, and we ask that we would respond properly. Friends, in Jesus' name, amen.